G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is The Truth of It. And today I'm going to be talking about three topics. They all sound terrible. Don't worry, we're not going to end on a low note. But the first one is mandatory consent training in Australian schools. What does it mean? What's the ideological baggage that lies inside of it? Second of all, we're going to be talking about Victoria's conversion laws, anti-conversion laws, conversion therapy laws, change and suppression laws, whatever you want to call them. They're coming into effect right now. In fact, they've been in effect for a few weeks. What does that mean for particularly Christians going forward in the state of Victoria? And finally, I am going to be off the back of the uh, event of Mardi Gras in Sydney. I'm going to be talking about the uh, topical issues for that event of love and acceptance. What do they really mean? But first up, I want to talk about consent training in schools, which is about to become mandatory in Australian schools. As of the 4th of February 2022, there was a joint meeting of Australian education ministers regarding the National Curriculum Review, and they unanimously decided to mandate so-called consent training in the national curriculum. Now, if it's in the national curriculum, it means it applies to both public schools and private schools. And this consent training is to be taught to all age groups from kindergarten through year 10 in a, quote, age-appropriate way. This is part of sex education, right? consent training. That's that's what it is. Now, a copy of the consent training curriculum itself is not yet publicly available, but they have, it seems, given summaries to certain media outlets. Um, I dare say the non-public availability could be to do with the controversial nature of it. Uh, that's just a thought. But the Sydney Morning Herald says, quote, revisions to the health and physical education component of the curriculum addresses the role of gender, power, coercion, and disrespect in abusive or violent relationships. Uh, it's said to include, quote, multiple topics that have been lacking in sex education, such as, note these words, gendered stereotypes, coercion, and power imbalances. Now, I just wanted to note something. Given where this document's come from, the education departments, um, those are trigger words. Those are dead giveaways for certain ideological baggage. And I want to flag right now, and I'm going to come back to it in a second, that they signal that this consent training in the sex education program will be heavily ideologically loaded, okay? Let me read another couple of quotes. All Australian high school students, it says, will be taught about coercion in sexual relationships and teenagers will rehearse how to seek, give, and deny consent, unquote. Students will, quote, describe strategies for seeking, giving, or denying consent and rehearse how to communicate their intentions effectively and respectfully, unquote. They're going to learn to, quote, communicate assertively and respectfully, unquote. We're going to examine strategies to support the development of respectful sexual relationships. So in addition to being heavily ideologically driven, I guess this is also going to be pretty explicit. Workshops, strategies, all this kind of stuff, uh, rehearsals. Uh, yeah, so there's two great starts. Let me unpack the ideological history and baggage that's actually at play in this and that's going to be coming through. The program was created in direct reply to and in constant consultation with the advocacy of Chanel Contos, who started the movement TUC, or Teach Us Consent. Uh, she has, if you follow her social media and all that, you see that she has very clear leftist and Marxist views. And it began when she told her own story of being sexually assaulted at just 13. And I want to note something here. Many of these movements are started by a young woman with a genuinely terrible or tragic backstory. And that tends to mean that this young woman has a shroud of protection over her. People don't criticize her or her ideas because they are seen in some sense of, of beating up the victim. Uh, and it's almost clever, uh, but they genuinely do have terrible backstories, which makes them free from criticism. Um, Grace Tame, 
Brittany Higgins, uh, and Chanel Contos. Now, Contos uh, started her whole thing when she um, uh, told her story, and she starts a petition, and she made an Instagram poll which posed this question. If you live in Sydney, have you or has anyone close to you ever experienced sexual assault from someone who went to an all-boys school? So it's interesting there that she's targeting the all-boys school. Sounds like a gender stereotype, which I thought we were against, but um, a teacher's consent petition was acknowledged by a Greens MP in the New South Wales Parliament in the following terms. This petition calls on us as legislators to act to ensure that holistic consent sex education, which acknowledges, check out the ideologically loaded phraseology here, which I'll come back to and deal with, toxic masculinity, rape culture, um, I'm just going to say S-shaming, I don't want to say that word, victim blaming, and sexual coercion, and emphasizes on communicative consent, affirmative consent, and offers content for all people in our school system and community, that probably is code for queer, it inc is included in the school curriculum. And the official TUC statement actually added queer sex education to that list of ideological phrases. That petition was tabled in the New South Wales Parliament, and a motion to support it was passed with unanimous cross-party support. Now, let me go a little deeper. Um, I'm going to come back to some of those words and just deal with them one by one in a second. First, I want to deal with something a little deeper. I want to look at something that Ms. Contos posted uh, on Instagram, where she said, quote, not all men. Yes, all men, because all women too. Everyone, start with yourself in rape culture, who is complacent equals complicit. Everyone contributes to rape culture unless they actively don't. Now, I want to pick this out to show, I mean, this really is a statement of creed here, to show some of the ideological baggage that's in this. It's a critical theory, actually, um, and it's familiar. Let's compare it, for example, to critical race theory for just a second. Critical race theory says something that a lot of people struggle to get their heads around. It says that racism is completely normal, that white supremacy is completely normal. These are not specific acts, but the whole world is utterly infected with these two things. And so am I as a white person, and so are you if you're a white person. That means you and I are white supremacists. We cannot deny it. We are complicit because we live in a white supremacist system, and we are white, and we cannot escape that paradigm. Everything we do is white supremacist and racist. We are racists, whether we like it or not. So racism is not a specific act of discrimination or prejudice, but racism is my very state of being from which I cannot escape. So if I do not actively fight against the white supremacist system, if I don't become an activist and even myself and repent for the rest of my life about my whiteness, I am a racist. Now, that's critical race theory, some of the key tenets of it. And I'm not even caricaturing, actually. That's, that they, that's a fact. Consider, for example, rape culture theory. It's very similar. Now, rape culture refers to a culture where rape is normalized and pervasive. I'm sure you've heard the word, the phrase, I mean, it's everywhere. Now, this is what they say, a culture where rape is normalized and pervasive. We don't live in a racist world this time. We live in a raping world. And just as I'm complicit in white supremacy as a white person, I am complicit in rape, especially as a man. Now, just as it defies belief that we live in a country that is by its very nature and definition and, 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 and DNA racist, uh, it is the most successful multicultural country on the planet. 
where people certainly barely notice skin tone above personhood, uh, and indeed where people of all skin tones and backgrounds desperately want to come to have a better life. Uh, now, that's not really a racist country, uh, whatever racist acts might take place here from time to time. It defies belief that racism is the right definition for this society. In the same way, it defies belief that we live in a society where rape is culture, where rape is normalized. Rape is one of the most serious criminal offenses that we have. Massive police resources are dedicated to addressing it. The overwhelming majority of people will never commit such a crime and never wish to commit such a crime or come anywhere near to it. I could go on. Now that is all true unless, of course, you change and you diminish the definition of rape. Just as they changed and diminished the definition of racism, rape now means victim blaming, sexual objectification. Again, S-shaming, disapproving a woman's sexual promiscuity denying widespread rape. So the fact that I'm saying that this isn't a rape society, oh, okay, that's rape culture, okay, I'm complicit. So if I have a question in my mind, for example, about, let's say, Brittany Higgins's conduct at all, you know, I'm victim blaming, they say, because they think sin is a zero-sum game, where if I say, oh, that's not right, somehow I'm exonerating the oppressor and blaming them. It's complete garbage. You know, Christians understand that the things we do, the actions we take, we're responsible before God for those things. It's not me and me pointing at my, the person I blame, it's just me. And so when you say to somebody, that wasn't right, that was a mistake, that was a silly thing, you're not saying, well, the other person's innocent. No, 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 no. They'll be completely accountable and completely guilty still. But of course, in this weird world, they say, oh no, victim blaming. If you have anything to level whatsoever against somebody who is in a designated victim group, well, that's rape culture. Um, If I say that rape is not normalized, as I just did, then I'm participating in rape culture. If I do say that a woman should not be promiscuous, and I don't think she should, uh, I don't think a man should be promiscuous either, for the record, um, I'm participating in rape culture. And when you consider all those things to be rape, well, first it makes a joke of the word, which is serious and wrong, but it also makes us all into rapists or perpetuators of rape cultures, rape culture. So I am part of rape culture unless I accept their definitions and actively fight in the way that they demand that I do. Just as I was a racist, and indeed am a racist, unless I accept their definitions uh, and I actively fight in exactly the way that they want me to politically. And you see the thinking. I use race as a parallel. I could have used a couple of others. This is another example of critical theory. How is it resolved? Well, there isn't really a solution except some kind of angry revolution and, 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 and general upset and, and, and fight on our hands. You know, in relation to race, it was smash all the white people and everything that they've ever done in history. Tear down their statues, you know, go and riot in the streets and all this kind of stuff. It's not solved, uh, but hey, it was a good time. Uh, in relation to this matter, it is smash the men. Uh, and everything that they do in relation to women, um, unless they repent and join your side. Uh, For example, look at Scott Morrison. He couldn't even shake Grace Tame's hand and smile without being the absolute enemy. Why? Because he hasn't bowed completely to the ideology. Therefore, he is part of rape culture. You see how it works. Um, Now, that's the ideological underpinning of so much of this. That really is where a lot of these people are coming from. It is a very much a leftist critical theory. I will say Marxist because we're familiar with the phrase. Some will disagree with me, but certainly there's Marxist undertones in this without a doubt. Um, I want to make two general points to close. The first one is, let's look at the deceptive lingo that has arisen from this movement. And I've quoted some of it earlier on. Wherever education authorities talk about things like gendered stereotypes, you know what they're talking about. You just need to know the people and the ideology that's gone into this. 
They are erasing, they're talking about the erasing of maleness and femaleness. And secondly, they're talking about the introduction of queer theory. Um, indeed, there is queer sex education mentioned as a separate category by that Greens MP on that petition. Um, you know, they say there's no male and there's no female, and they teach kids that, and that that's all just stereotype. And then if they go further, which they usually do, they say, well, you can be something else altogether. It's not about men and women, it's about queer. It's about being whatever you want to be. Whenever they talk about, and here's another phrase, power imbalances, you know that they are talking about a Marxist sort of thinking. Women as victims, men as perpetrators. Or, you know, they say toxic masculinity, right? That's what that is. Um, or indeed the shaming of men and the approving of women. Whatever women do in this space is liberating themselves, being strong and powerful, you know, and getting out there and just being like a man. And that's the word that I wouldn't repeat um, before, shaming. Um, blaming men and absolving women. Um, well, again, victim blaming, right? It's all the man's fault no matter what. No matter what. There's no blame to be leveled anywhere else. Uh, and if you do, you're absolving the man somehow, which is just nonsense. Um, victim blaming. All these phrases, we've just read them. This is what they're talking about. And the move is towards women who are powerful and men who are submissive and in a twisted kind of Marxist way, uh, the need to smash the patriarchy. It's a comprehensive ideology which takes a very real tragedy, rape, and uses it to smash and undermine good things. Good things like, and this is in the Bible, the headship of men, the responsibility of men, good things like the meekness of women, good things like abstinence and purity, heterosexuality, it's the only way, marriage, masculinity, femininity, you know, I could go on. And they are desperate to get this ideological mumbo jumbo into the minds of kids as young as humanly possible. So they drive it into the education curriculum. They did it with the Good Society program, which I've covered uh, here on The Truth of It. Um, and, uh, with, and that was a program that introduced the ideas of transgenderism and role-playing boys in makeup and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that was all opt-in. Consent training will be mandatory. It's the same buzzwords entirely that are used to describe it. And here is something very insidious. Uh, when they ruin the innocence of a child with all of this gunk, or indeed what remains of the innocence of a teenager, they awaken lusts and desires of that young person, um, which are very powerful. And they embed this ideology as part of their lust for rebellion and their lust for all things sexual. And when they attach it to that, and it indeed gives them a context and a permission for those things, they let it rip. It's devilish. It's an awful thing. Which brings me to my second general point, my final point. And this is just a comment that I want to make about sex education in general. I want you to notice what I just said. Lust. That's a powerful force in human nature. And it's not easily tamed, but it is easily awakened. According to the Apostle John, the human nature is sinful. It is governed by the lust of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. And indeed, that's the teaching of the whole Bible. This is why detailed sex education has simply never worked. Because it was, and it is, based on the lie that information will save a child, that information will tame lust and desire. In fact, information actually awakens lust and desire. So if you're a parent, don't fall for this lie which denies the truth about a sinful human nature. You don't want a child who is informed on all the sordid and corrupting details of these matters. You want a child who has a force in their life which is actually capable of taming lust and actually capable of giving them real desire to avoid sin. 
That is their faith and that is their fear of God. And Joseph is the great example in this regard. Here is an attractive young man, all alone, forever estranged from parents and family and their watching eye, far away in a foreign land, a slave with no rights or real prospects, and nobody was watching. But one thing preserved Joseph. He said, how can I do this great sin against my God? You need a child that fears God and lives by faith in him. Not a child that is fully informed with information that frankly they can't handle. You need a child who restrains their sin in obedience to God, not a child whose sin is awakened with too much information. And we would never have gotten into this sorry mess of consent training to minors if we had just followed that line. All right, next up, the conversion law in Victoria takes effect. This is another tough one. Don't worry, there's light at the end of the tunnel. The subject of conversion therapy actually has come up again, I've noticed, in quite a big way across the globe, and this is because of some developments in America, I think. It coincides, interestingly, with the conversion laws in the state of Victoria, Australia, coming into effect. Now, you know that legislation passed a while ago, and I covered it at the time in detail, but they are now in operation as of February of this year. These are the most draconian laws of their kind anywhere in the world by far. So people in other jurisdictions might like to look at this and see where this goes. And the reason I bring this update is that it does look as though they're going to be enforced very actively and that churches will be targeted. And that is based on the information and the statements being put out by the Human Rights Commission in Victoria. And I don't say that to provoke alarm. And I I do it rather to prepare and to inform because it is true. And we need to know that and we need to think about it. I believe that a Victorian church leader will be prosecuted before too long under these laws. And it is certainly true that police will knock on the doors of one or two or several Victorian church leaders and that the Human Rights Commission will investigate and will take action and will come sniffing around certain churches and church leaders. I am sure of that, especially the last one. How long will it take? How many will there be? I don't know, but it will happen. The Victorian Human Rights Commission has published guidance with the, uh, the, the, the uh, enlivening of these laws in the last month. And I'm going to quote you some of it. So this is straight from their documents. Practices that would be considered illegal under the Act include, one, a religious leader meeting one-on-one and pressuring a member of their congregation to suppress and ignore their feelings of same-sex attraction by practicing celibacy. Two, running a peer-to-peer support group designed to coach a person who is exploring their gender identity to accept the sex they were assigned at birth. Three, A religious leader tells a member of their congregation they will be excommunicated if they continue their same-sex relationship and prohibited from returning as long as that relationship continues. Three examples given. They add this note. A person may be willing to participate in these practices. However, someone's willingness to participate does not change the unlawfulness of these practices. You You might say that's sounding pretty extreme, and it is, but it wouldn't stop there. Um, Those are just three examples. There is more. Let me read you some parts of the Act itself from Section 3, Objects of the Act. Quote, to ensure that all people, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity, feel welcome and feel valued in Victoria and are able to live authentically and with pride. To denounce and give statutory recognition to the serious harms caused by the change in suppression practices. To affirm that every person's sexual orientation and gender identity is not broken and in need of fixing. To affirm that no sexual orientation or gender identity constitutes a disorder, disease, illness, deficiency, or shortcoming. So they might as well have said, to crush all dissent. Pride, to live authentically with pride, is an incredibly high standard. To feel valued is an incredibly high standard. 
Deficiency or shortcoming, whew, that's a high standard not to enable any of those thoughts. Denounce is what you do to a heretic. Well, section five, let's jump on. This is the big one. Change or suppression practice means, and note that change or suppression practice is what this act prohibits. It's not conversion therapy, it's something far more general. It says this is the thing that is prohibited. Change or suppression practice means conduct directed towards a person, whether with or without the person's consent, on the basis of the person's sexual orientation or gender identity, and for the purpose of changing or suppressing the sexual orientation or gender identity of the person, or inducing, you know, that is encouraging, uh, the person to change or suppress their sexual orientation or gender identity. It then includes a list of specific examples, one of which is, quote, prayer-based practice. I think it's the only act, uh, perhaps in the Western world, where prayer is listed as a possible criminal offence. Um, you see how the Human Rights Commission's examples now fit. Let's take the one of the religious leader in a meeting with the same-sex attracted person. That is, conduct directed towards a person. Tick. Uh, and then it says pressuring, or even if we just say encouraging, which is more likely, pressuring is a little less, encouraging a person to ignore their feelings of same-sex attraction and practice celibacy. Well, is that conduct for the purpose of inducing the person to change or suppress their sexual orientation or gender identity. Under the terms of the act, it sure is. It sure is. And note, it matters not whether this is voluntary, whether the meeting was requested, whether the question is asked. Let's lower the threshold on another one of those examples. Let's say that we're not talking about excommunication. Let's say something more likely. So uh, I, I don't know that there's much of what I've described going on anywhere, but let's take, uh, for example, putting somebody out of the worship team or removing them from eldership in the church, you know, some kind of ministry role due to same-sex relationship. Now, that would be perfectly commonplace, I imagine, in many churches because it would not meet the church's requirement for serving in ministry. Is it illegal? I honestly can't see how it would not be. It is conduct directed at a person on the basis of sexual orientation for the purposes of inducing them to suppress or change. At least, if asking them not to come back to church qualifies, then I think that it would be likely that this also qualifies to ask them to step down from this role. It would surely be similar. In fact, here's the interesting thing. You can workshop so many examples in this and it's alarming where it goes. Encouraging a single straight male to be celibate would theoretically be illegal under the act because that is inducing him, a straight male, on the basis of his singleness, it's inducing him to suppress his sexual orientation under the definitions in the act. It's quite extraordinary. And I haven't even got to what is actually the bigger problem for people at large who aren't people of faith in the state of Victoria. Like, for example, parents who are dealing with a child who's gender dysphoric. The same prohibitions apply to that parent in relation to their child as are applying to a church leader about encouraging somebody to embrace the sex they were born with at birth. I mean, parents, it's just astounding. And then when you get into counselling and medical practice, it applies to everyone, not just churches. It's just that the Human Rights Commission has kind of made it clear they're going to target churches. Um, the Human Rights Commission says, um, that, uh, says that all of these things are going to be illegal under the Act. The question then is, what about preaching? What about teaching? Is it illegal if it touches on matters of sexual orientation and gender identity, if it presents what the Bible teaches about God made the male and female in his image, if it presents what the Bible teaches about Romans 1 saying that, you know, uh, homosexual conduct is shameful and things like this, or that, uh, you know, God's design is that a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one, and that's the definition of marriage given by Jesus. You know, if you teach these things, what does it mean? Does it mean you're breaking the act? Well, the Human Rights Commission says no. Um, it says you can say these things that are general in nature or that are spoken to groups. Um, I actually think that the true answer probably isn't no. 
I think that that's what they're saying at the moment. But I think that under the terms of the law, it might be better to say we don't think so just yet. Um, and they say that the actions are not captured by the law because they are not, quote, directed towards an individual. They would be directed towards a group or it would be a statement in general to the world at large about theology or the Bible. And I see the point that they're making, but it's important to note that the act itself does not actually use the word individual. The law, the act itself, uses the words directed at a person. The question then is, can statements be directed at a person as part of a group of people? especially in light of these comprehensive objects of the act, that a person in the group should be able to live authentically and with pride and feel valued and shouldn't be subjected to a view that might sound like their sexual desire is a shortcoming. I'm honestly not confident. Certainly, however, the greatest risk at the present time is in personal and small group settings. It's in the conversations that are had, it's in the counselling sessions that are had, it's in the questions people may ask, the prayer requests people may give. It's small groups, it's personal. It's not congregational settings or statements at large to the world at large at the moment. But I can't see that the law prohibits that from being a problem. With the law coming into effect, the Human Rights Commission has now set up a website, this is great, where people can lodge complaints about people and institutions with a few easy clicks. Uh, They are encouraging also historic complaints from the past. The Commission has the power to pursue complaints, investigate complaints, compel the production of documents like sermons and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, uh, sanction, to re-educate, to punish, and to suppress organisations and individuals to issue orders about what they can and can't do in the future. A complaint could be made by anyone at all to initiate this, or the Commission can simply act off of a secret and anonymous complaint, and I do mean strictly secret. This is called an own motion investigation, where they can then act off their own own, um, initiative to compel the production of documents, to re-educate those who are wrongdoers. They can issue remedies like enforceable undertakings and compliance notices, demanding suppression of what you're doing and other such things. They can also sanction an individual or an organization And when they do so, can you believe this? The onus of proof is reversed. In other words, they can sanction you and the onus of proof falls on you to prove that you are innocent. In other words, it's not innocent until proven guilty. You are guilty because the Human Rights Commission said so and you have to prove to the equal, one of the tribunals down there, which is gonna be ideologically stacked anyway, that you're innocent. The Human Rights Commissioner Roe Allen, who goes by the pronouns they, them, is currently on record as putting together a team for implementing this scheme. The Commission has been on an education tour, which included uh, visits to churches. Uh, And if all fails, there are criminal sanctions available as well, like fines up to $200,000 and prison terms of up to 10 years. That's why I mentioned the police earlier on in this piece. This law is theological, it is hunting for heretics, and it will find them because we are here. There is a great verse in the book of James, which calls the word of God, the law of liberty. I love that phrase. I'll read it. It says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For if he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like, but one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. I want to make this point in light of this law and the theology that it seems to teach about the harmful and oppressive and dreadful things that we believe on this stuff. The fact of the matter is obedience to God is true liberty. That is true freedom. 
The world tells us that it is in obedience to our own lusts and our own desires and our own feelings that we find freedom. But that is not freedom. None of us are free when we are slaves to the passions of the self. That is a kind of slavery. It is slavery and it leads to death. The other kind of obedience is obedience to God and that leads to life and it leads to liberty of the soul and it leads to being blessed in all that we do. That is where these people are so tragically wrong. They've searched for freedom in themselves and in their inability to break free from God's, and in the search for freedom in themselves and their attempt to break free from God's word. They have not found it. And now they're hunting down people like me and churches and pastors who disagree in the belief that it's our fault. And I'm unashamed to say that no, it's not our fault. We've found answers. We've found the perfect law, the law of liberty, and Christ has set us free to follow it. And in closing, let me say this point for people who might be in Victoria or who might find themselves caught by the Victorian laws or who might be pastors or whatever. Times, yes, they're a changing, but everything new is actually old. Even the Apostle Paul was hauled before the Roman authorities to give an account of himself and what he taught. And it's been much the same ever since. Let me read you the words of Jesus who anticipated exactly this sort of thing and far worse from the words that you read here and gave us some instructions. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of the father speaking through you. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul or or Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? That's us. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. For For what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. As ever, therefore, in the light of those words, the call is to remain bold, remain faithful, confident that the reward is to come, like so many who have gone before us. Indeed, be like Daniel. He read the king's edict. We just read the law. And what did he do? He walked away, knowing the penalty, and he lived as if that edict, that law, didn't exist. All right, finally, Mardi Gras. Uh, Well, we've just come off the back of Mardi Gras week and the rainbows have been everywhere. I've noticed corporate logos have been rainbowed up and certainly have been flying. It's all over the place. I'd like to do something that was actually inspired by the spirit of Mardi Gras. And they might be shocked to know that they have inspired me and it could make some of you nervous. But what I mean is this. We're told that Mardi Gras is all about love and acceptance. uh, And we're supposed to embrace those things and stand for those things. And so I will. 
um, I want to say a few things about love, and I want to say a few things about acceptance. Um, regarding love, I want to say this, and this would be to those who, you know, support Mardi Gras as much as anything, but to everybody. There is something deeper than passion. There is something deeper than sentimentality. There is the action of love. There is the sacrifice of loving someone. That is what we learn about love when we look at God. And the Bible says that God is love. Love is of God. And so true love's true source is God. There is a source and there is a truth about love that comes from him. And you might say, well, great, God is love. God feels sentimental and nice all the time. Or God likes me. Or God only does things that are nice and positive. And the answer is no. Someone approached me recently um, at an event with their Bible open and they asked me uh, a good question. They asked why the Psalms say that God hates the wicked. And he showed me one of the verses. Uh, he said, if God loves everybody, then how can that be so? And the answer is because you haven't actually understood the love of God. God has loved the wicked, including me, but in a particular and a profound way. Not to think nice thoughts about me all day, not something sentimental or passionate, but something altogether more profound than those things. And we think that love is sentimentality and passion. Uh, it's not. Think of John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that. Aha, we're going to find out exactly what it is that, that, that is this love. What is it that gives content to this word love? What is the thing that he has done that is loving? That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life life. Or indeed, another scripture, God has demonstrated his love towards us in that. In other words, here it is in this specific, particular, profound way, this action, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Another one, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son to the world so that we might live through him. In this was it manifest. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the sacrifice, the atonement for our sin. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. That is true love. The ultimate sacrifice the, for the ultimate blessing of the ultimately undeserving. He may hate wickedness and he may hate the purveyors of wickedness, but that is why he loves. He's moved in his being to make a way of salvation for them, even though that way of salvation could not have cost him any more and could not have been done to any less deserving. And that is why we know that truest love is action at personal cost for the blessing of others. And that is exactly how we love God in return. And this is important. If you love me, said Jesus, you will keep my commandments. You say you love him? Is it sentimentality? Is it passion? Or is it real? Is it a sacrifice that you make? And I speak advisedly, a sacrifice you make to bless him. That is to honor his sacrifice for you. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Well, what about acceptance? That's love. What about acceptance? And we often hear it said that Jesus accepted people. Therefore, we should accept all people. 
And it's a curious statement because if you actually read the Gospels, and most people who say this is what Jesus was like probably actually, in my experience, don't read the Gospels very much. But if you read the Gospels, you'll notice pretty quickly that Jesus turned a lot of people away. Uh, he turned them off in the sense that they got sick of him or they got angry with him or they decided it wasn't for them or that it was all too hard um, or they disagreed, but also he specifically turned people away as well. You think of Nicodemus, at least at first, the first time around, um, Jesus put some pretty hard sayings in front of him. There's no record of him going further at that stage. Or you think of the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful. He said, oh, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him an answer which he didn't like and he turned away and Jesus let him go. He rebuked the Pharisees. There's a lot of examples of him turning people away. And you say, well, why? Well, first we need to define acceptance. If it means existing in the same space as somebody else, well, of course. But Jesus' acceptance was something far greater. It was nothing short of the forgiveness of sins and salvation and eternal life. And that kind of acceptance comes with today, and it came with then, conditions. And it does not come to someone who stays as they are. That was the rich young ruler's problem. He wanted to stay as he was. He didn't want to deal with his issues. That was Nicodemus' struggle. A man who was righteous in his works and had spent his whole life like that. And Jesus says, Jesus says, no, you must be born again. He needed to think about that. What was required of him, the change. And the acceptance of Jesus Christ in its ultimate sense of salvation comes to those who repent from sin and put faith in him. There are conditions. He leaves nobody as they are. He only calls people to transformation. Indeed, otherwise he rejects. Nobody has ever come to Christ on their own terms. No one has ever been right with God on their own terms. Let me tie those two points of love and acceptance together in a scripture, John 14, 23. This is an ultimate picture of acceptance and an ultimate picture of love. It says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Aha, there's the action, uh, it's sacrifice, you know. He will keep my word and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That is acceptance, that is love, and those are the conditions. I just wanna say, Christian, stop being influenced by Mardi Gras theology. Understand the content of these words that you might think well, and that you might grasp the needs of our world better. I'm Mark Niles, and that was the truth of it.